Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we start today's podcast, a quick heads up on Sherlock's VIP Club. From restaurants, bars and hotels to beauty, wellness and shopping, Sherlock's partners with some of London's best destinations and hottest brands to bring its VIPs exclusive monthly offers. So why not sign up? It'll cost you just £5 a month or £50 for the year. Use your card once or twice and you'll have made that amount back in no time. For more information, visit sherlocksvip.com. With just $300 in her pocket, Marcia Kilgore moved from Canada to join her sister in New York. Needing to pay off her student loans, she started giving facials to friends in a small office space. But it wasn't long before age 26, Marcia launched Bliss Spa, seeing a rapid expansion and developing a wildly popular product line. Bliss was soon endorsed by the likes of Oprah, Madonna and Demi Moore. Selling Bliss for a reported $50 million was just the beginning. Marcia has spent the last two decades launching global brands Soap and Glory, Fit Flop and Sopa Duper, with her most recent venture, Beauty Pie, being heralded as driving a truck through the luxury cosmetic industry. A serial entrepreneur who has founded five multi-million pound businesses by knowing what women need before they even know it themselves, Marcia Kilgore, welcome to your Sherlock's success story. Thank you. Gosh, there's a lot to cover. Five businesses, but let's go back to the beginning and get the whole picture. You grew up in Canada, but you famously moved to New York age 17. Why did you do that? I had been to New York to visit my older sister when I was 16, and I found it really enthralling, interesting, vibrant, and stimulating. And when I went back to Canada for my last couple of years of high school, I kind of knew I couldn't stay there anymore when there was something like New York out there. So when I graduated from 12th grade, I decided that I was going to go to New York and try to make a go of it. Doing what? Did not know. (laughs) So you arrived. I arrived. $300 in your pocket. Yes. And And I did have a few skills. So I put the skills that I had to use at the time. So in Canada, I had used my spare time to be a bodybuilder. Now, you can't see that now. No. But... (laughs) You're supposed to say yes. Yes, of course you can. Well, you're very toned physique, but I'm not seeing bodybuilder. No. So I probably for two or three years in my teenage years, you know, killed my spare time by lifting weights at a gym and being a competitive bodybuilder. And I made money by teaching aerobics classes and by, you know, training and every odd job that I could get. And when I moved to New York, it was really at the beginning of those days where gyms were starting to become prevalent in New York. And so I worked at a gym called Better Bodies, and it was where Jean-Claude Van Damme and his wife Gladys Portuguese worked out, as well as a lot of budding fashion industry photographers and film directors. And because I had this quite incredible physique at the time, which was somewhere between Olympic athlete and, I guess, dancer, a lot of the people who worked out in the gym and were kind of new to working out 
asked me to be their personal trainer. I had the likes of Douglas Keeves, who was Isaac Mizrahi's boyfriend at the time, a lot of famous photographers and, and models and actors and actresses. I became a personal trainer. Amazing. At the time, whilst personal training, you did a course in skincare. I did. So when you're running around in New York and it's very humid in the summer, your skin can take a beating. And I already had quite oily skin, so it was hard to control in the first place, and I didn't really know how to take care of it. So one summer, I had the choice of either going out to the Hamptons and hanging out on the beach and doing the odd personal training session, or taking a crash course in how to give a facial at Christine Velmi Institute on 28th Street and 5th Avenue. So I chose the latter and learned how to give facials and fixed my own skin, learned the science behind the anatomy and physiology of the skin, and then started to study products and ingredients and everything that went along with it. And I really loved it. And how did you convert personal training clients into skincare clients? I was very persuasive. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know you had how. the gift of the gab. You know, I don't then. know how they trusted me, to tell you the truth. I wouldn't have, but I would go with a bunch of you know materials for personal training and show up at one of my clients' houses and then convince them I would also bring a steamer and all of the products in another bag. So I was like a Sherpa showing up. You know, I would take the subway up to 75th and Park and take somebody running through the park and running stairs and do some calisthenics and then say, hey, can I practice giving facials on you? And before long, I actually had quite a lot of people paying me to give them facials. And I had modeling agencies who used to send their out-of-shape models or girls who were new faces who would want to be in New York for the first time and they wanted to tone up, they would send me those girls and then they started to send me the girls who had acne. So in my one-room apartment on Avenue B and 8th Street, I would have not only all this personal training paraphernalia, but I would also then have someone show up with really terrible skin and give them facials. And before long, you were quite literally seeing the rich and famous. Yes, probably more the famous and maybe a little bit of the rich. With a waiting list, I read, of about 18 months for a yeah. facial. Well, you know, there's only so many slots you can what give a facial doing? during a week. What were you doing in there? Really great facials. <laughs> you know what it is. I think if you give a thorough service from start to finish and that you're positive, I don't think there was anything positive in terms of an experience for a facial in New York at that time. So you could go to a Romanian place or a, a Russian facial institute where they would maybe make you feel ashamed of your skin. Mm. Or you could come to me who would do probably a more modern technique and make you feel great about yourself. So I've always been about giving people that fairy tale and making them feel like where they're going or what they're buying or what they're spending their money on is going to take them away and give them that fairy tale, even if it's just for an hour and a half or even if it's delivered in a box. And you then decided to open a spa. Were you called Bliss at that point? No, I had a little facial studio with three different rooms and a little manicure and pedicure area. And it was called Let's Face It. Right. And I had that for three years and I just gradually hired staff. I didn't really know what I was doing because I'd never had staff before. So I hired one person and then we got busier. So I hired another person. Then I hired a manicurist and then I hired a receptionist. And so it sort of grew and grew and grew. But soon in Let's Face It, which was only three rooms, we had these shifts so that we could accommodate more customers. And that's when that waiting list, it got crazy because you literally would have, you know, people waiting for 18 months just to get time to come in. So we worked Monday to Saturday, pretty much 12 hours a day. But it was, you know, Incredible. it was mayhem in there. And at what point did it become bliss? 
So there was a point where I was giving a facial to someone and thinking about if we were to expand and offer also body treatments, which were starting to be all the rage and other services and a more extensive menu, what would I want to call it? And so I, I remember being in the room and I'm in the middle of a facial, which I think actually moving your body, they've now proven helps your neurons connect in a different way. So if you want to have an idea, you should go for a walk or do something different, not sit at your desk. And so I was massaging someone and doing this part of the facial. And I remember thinking, what is the feeling that I want my customer to have when she leaves or when she's there? And in one word, it came to me that it was bliss. Mm. It was a good moment. And then all the hair on my arms stood up on end, which normally happens when I have a really, really good idea. You know, you have yeah. a feeling where yeah. your hair stands up. And so I knew it was, you just knew it was it. the one, yeah. And it happens every time. And how had you funded it to that point? Oh, with what I had stashed under my mattress for my personal training funds and hope. And had you any business training at that point? No, I had no business training as such. I had taken a few classes at New York University as sort of a part-time student in English and I guess what you would call theoretical economics. And I think I had also taken discrete mathematics, but nothing in terms of how mm. to model a business. But you know what? I never... You made it up as you went along. I made it... It's common sense, mm. right? Would you pay for this mm. at this price? And is it great? And would you tell your friends? Yeah. And if you would, then that's worth opening. And if you wouldn't buy it yourself, don't sell it. And if you start there, it takes you a little while to get there. Yeah. And then you keep thinking, if I'm a discerning customer and I'm demanding... Are they delivering for me what I would expect? And if it's not good enough, don't bother. So true. So simple. It is simple. And, but did you have anyone advising you? I mean, you were pretty young. I was young, yeah. Did you have anyone that you could go to? No. But you know what? I think I probably benefited from just the support. And maybe there was advice coming to me all the time through these women, you know, coming in and not necessarily giving me business advice in terms of, have you thought about this or have you thought about that? And when I had conversations with them, it was about them, mm. right? But I am sure there was some kind of know-how that must have transferred in that room because I spent 12 hours a day there. And just being hands-on, knowing how to run a business, knowing if you're with that customer so closely, what she's experiencing, that tells you a lot if you're mm. listening. And you say we worked 12 hours a day, Monday to Saturday. Who were we? Who were we? And did everyone not want you? How did you get away from that? Because I think for so many people, they struggle. They don't want to be the business. If they're going to scale a business, it can't necessarily be all about them. Sure, of course. And that's why I didn't call it Marcia Kilgore's, you know, facial studio. And I think that's very difficult for founders who name things after themselves. Absolutely. But we developed techniques and we developed protocol for different treatments and everyone was trained in them. And then there were other rules like you never complain near a client you might be having a bad day that is your problem she's not here to hear you talk about you having a bad day she's here to talk about herself <laughs> we made sure that everybody you're, you're a therapist you are in, a therapist the in all senses right so you should be the beauty therapist and you should be the psychological therapist and it is all positive <laughs> and then you hire accordingly because if you have people who can't do that and there are personalities who just can't be professional like that they'd rather kind mm. of share their their sorrows. That's not what our customer was coming to bliss for. So it was about making sure that all of the team were aligned with our values. And then some very basic things, which still, I don't think still happen to this day because I saw that business quite a long time ago. But we used to do very basic, obvious things like writing thank you notes to our clients. So if someone came in for a facial and then left 
$150 with us, we would send them a thank you note. Wouldn't Again. you? Again, seems so simple, It's quite it? simple. It took time and making sure that every massage therapist did not leave that day without writing all their thank you notes, did not go at that front door. That was work, but they got used but to it. it. Paid off. Well, they saw their customers coming mm. back. So it's common sense. How do you want to be treated, right? Yeah. And lots of things were going right. What were the toughest things that you were dealing with as you were trying to grow this business in those early days? I think certainly I dealt with a lot of exhaustion. Dealing with staff and people and their personalities is always a challenge because you don't necessarily know how to help them to see things necessarily the way that the business might want to be run. But I didn't have that many problems with that. I think I'm quite lucky that I started very young because I had a lot of energy and I could talk to people so they understood, come on, person to person here, you want to be successful, you have to do it like this. So I can't really remember or I haven't registered hard times. I mean, hard times for people are when you can't put food on the table, right? Yeah, true. So there might be a couple of days when the phone didn't ring quite as much because it was a Jewish holiday and we were in New York, right? And half yeah. of New York is Jewish. And we thought, <gasps> no one's calling anymore. But then two days later, it all kind of turned mm-hmm. around. Yeah. And what were the truths? I mean, I remember when Bliss came to London. Yeah. And it was the place to go for a facial that really worked. Yeah. You know, there were a lot of nice places to go, but everyone said, you've got to go for the triple oxygen facial. Yeah. It's the one I remember brides booking it in because it was yeah. the only facial that was ever really going to do any. It's a great any, facial. Any good. What were the treatments that you were offering that were flying off the shelves? Triple oxygen facial was probably our most popular and famous facial. I mean, and that was, it, that was one that was there glow. at the beginning back in the day, was it? Uh, no. So first it was the oxygen facial. Then when we found another product that we could add into it that actually increased the oxygen potential of the skin. It was the double oxygen facial. (laughs) Then in my research, I found a third thing that we could do to add oxygen into the skin again at the very end of the treatment and it became the triple oxygen facial. You have to evolve, right? So as a business, your offering has to evolve or people get bored. As a human, you have to evolve. As a business person, you have to evolve. That's the the meaning of life, right? And what were the other treatments that were really popular? We had the Herbie. We had a quadruple thigh pass, which was this crazy cellulite treatment where you would kind of pummel, twist, massage. Yes, of course it worked. Sorry, of course it worked. (laughs) Everything worked. (laughs) We had great manicures and pedicures. I mean, there were just we had rosy toes, which would have been very popular here, I think, because the English love the roses. Yeah, yeah. And the story goes that you soon found that you were extracting blackheads and shaping the eyebrows of people like Oprah Winfrey and Madonna. Yes. Was that just word of mouth? Yes, of course. I think, you know, if you get a couple of people who are in that fashion or a television business, then they start to refer everybody else to you. I'm trying to remember, I could probably trace it all back to a woman named Lori Goldstein. Of course, I had a lot of sort of models and that crowd already. And when I was first starting out and had one room, I did have, do you know Babel Gilberto? Babel Gilberto is Jao Gilberto's daughter. She's a singer. And she had this fantastic hit album called Tanto Tempo back in probably 1990 but I knew her since she moved to New York was totally broke was 18 years old used to come for facials and would leave a check with me remember checks so she (laughs) sadly I do yeah she'd leave a check with me because she didn't have the money and she'd say can you just hold this for three weeks and cash it after (laughs) such and such a date because she was so broke and then I had Kim Gordon of Sonic Youth and then I had a lot of the Victoria's Secret Angels who would come in for facials and then 
you know, I got Lori Goldstein, who is this very famous mm-hmm. stylist, and she sent Stephen Mysell, and Stephen sent, you know, whoever he was working with. And then, so it the ended up being Demi Moore and Oprah. And, yeah, Amazing. and everybody just kind of came in, and there's some great stories. And how did the product line come about? I imagine that was a very natural progression for you. Was that an easy process? Well, you know, again, when you don't have a business background, you take leaps off cliffs that maybe you don't know anything about. Ignorance is bliss. It is, and it can be a real blessing. Now, it depends. You want to test small. But we had a fantastic article once in Vogue when Vogue was just still huge circulation in America and was still a Bible because no other information was available online. And we had a cream that I imported at the time, which was in an article called Cult Creams. And there was a portrait taken that accompanied the article by Irving Penn, which was an incredibly arresting visual portrait of a woman having milk poured over her face. And it seemed that all of America bought Vogue and saw this picture, stopped in their tracks, and it was called Cult Creams, and they read down, and the quote was that this cream would solve elephant man-like acne, right? And suddenly, the phone started to ring. Um, Literally, we would show up in the morning. This was when you had answering machines. (laughs) And there would be 273 messages on the answering machine from the time we had left at 9 o'clock the night before of people wanting to buy this cream. And this went on for months. Wow. And what was the cream? It was an oxygen cream. Yeah, it was an oxygen cream that we used in the oxygen facial. Not exactly the same one, but from the same kind of technology. And we used it to disinfect the skin before we did extractions. And then we would use it again after extractions to make sure that you would never break out after a facial. So people called and they wanted to order this cream. And then they would receive their box and be delighted and say, what else do you have? So we thought, well, we have some other products that we sell to our customers and to the people who come in for facials, but we should do Bliss products. So we then went out looking for, and again, this is before the internet. You don't know how to make products, but there are laboratories out there that make products for everybody. And so this is sort of where the beginning of my experience started with products and recognizing how the beauty industry really works, which has led to where I am today, in fact. Which has led to Beauty Pie. We will come on to that. So long story short, you launched an incredible line of products. Today, are there still products that you use and rely on from that range? No, I evolve. A lot of people, though, there are some best-selling products that Bliss still has. Uh, The Lemon and Sage Body Butter was one of them. The High Intensity Hand Cream was another one. We had a great shower gel called Super Slough Scrub. I think it might be gone now because it was too expensive in terms of... cost of goods and therefore you have to multiply that cost of goods to sell it at retail and it just was too high quality for what people will pay for Mm -hmm. a shower gel and I mean there were quite a lot of good products but most of them I think have moved I try and always find the next best thing it's I guess my curiosity in trying to make things better that's why you've built so many successful businesses after just three years you sold a majority stake in Bliss 30 million dollars or thereabouts they say to LVMH god how incredible I mean after three years yes that's that's phenomenal. Well, it wasn't though, right? So, well, it, well Bliss LVMH opened in 1996, but before that, I had let's face it for three years, and before that, I had my one room little studio for two years. So, in fact, it was eight years. If well, you think about it. I'd stick with three, and I think that's pretty. It sounds incredible. good. It sounds good, but nothing is overnight like that. You know, it's great to have that story. But I think for entrepreneurs to realize eight years and okay, 30 million. Okay. And it wasn't that actually it was better, but 
to get a big chunk of money after eight years sounds different than three. True. But I want people listening to be prepared for eight long, hard years of slog Mm. because it isn't like this Mm. ever. And what happened to you in the business from that point on? Oh, well, I was very worried about that, actually, because I had been so broke for so long that I thought that perhaps the intrinsic motivation... I didn't necessarily know that I was driven by more of, you know, a natural motivation just to do things well. And I did have a time of panic thinking, oh my God, I'm going to get money for the first time in my life. And what if it changes my motivation? What if I'm not intrinsically motivated, but, you know, I'm actually motivated by money. And once I have money, I won't be able Mm. to be funny or write copy or come up with ideas or it won't be the same. Yeah, am I motivated by money or success? Yes, or Luckily, just or the you were the drive writer. to succeed. Yeah, I love working. I love working and I love to have a challenge and figure it out and go and do it and do it beautifully and then try and figure out how to do it even better. So it didn't change me at all. So you stayed in the business? Five years I stayed. For five years? Yes, that was our deal. We, right. Yes, that, that I would continue to help the business for five years. And frankly, I loved it so much. I mean, it was a community. It was more like a social club where we happened to give facials. I mean, the stories that came out of that place. Place. So you would never have a more exciting life than being a facialist at Bliss because the people who came through there, whether you were me or somebody else, were incredibly interesting people. These are the people that you want to have dinner with. You have very interesting conversations. I looked forward to my clients and I got to pick them because I had, you know, so if you couldn't get in because I only have X number of slots every month, I could choose who I saw. So I would choose my favorite people because you they were... Demi Moore and April Winfrey. Well, Oprah's amazing amazing. Demi was very demanding. But I also were incredibly smart people from the music industry, Mm. who, in fact, are attorney and head of business development at Beauty Pie, used to be a client and used to run international for Warner Electra Atlantic in 1996. So she was a friend of mine because she used to come for facials once a month. And now she heads up a department in our business here. Yeah. After Bliss, the 90s saw a real spa boom. And a lot of people cite Bliss as the driving force for that. How did you deal with all the competition at the time? Did, did you feel yourself losing market share or was it just getting bigger? I don't think about competition that way. In fact, I think you have to focus on what you're doing and what you're delivering. You want to certainly go out and look at what other people are offering because other people may have good ideas that you haven't incorporated yourself. But from my experience, it's very hard to find someone that is intrinsically motivated, number one, not lazy, number two, will continue to work and work and work until things get better and stay on top. So people can open different things, but there is nobody who is going to do it as well as you do it if you are working it hard and if your bar is set very high. So certainly because the spa industry became more well-known and people were more likely to go to spas who maybe had never even tried one before. There were more customers. There was more pie for everybody to be eating. So I didn't worry about it so much. It was in 2006 that you started your second business, Soap and Glory. Yes. You decided that you were motivated by success and not just the money you'd made. But I read this was meant to be a hobby because you just had your children. Yes. Not for long. No. It was one of those brands that sort of blew up despite that we wanted to kind of keep it small and and give me sort of a a foot in the industry so I could just kind of stay alert. Keep taking over. (laughs) Yeah, keep taking over. As I had my kids, I wanted to have that work-life 
work-life balance, which is a lie, right? <laughs> the work-life balance, it doesn't really exist. And there's that question, can women have it all, right? And I think we can. I do too. Yeah. We just have choices in you, terms yeah. of how much of this you and how much of that. You drive the bus and, and then you can make the choices. Exactly. Yeah. And that's your choice. Of course, interestingly, no one ever asks if men can have it all. Have you noticed? Mm. It's one of those. And do they think they do have it all? I think they don't care if they have it all. They just want what they want. So why Open Glory? What was the gap that you spotted in the market? I think it was probably around 2004 or five when Ray Kawakubo started to design things for H&M. And they started to do all these high street collaborations with different really great designers. And I've always been a very democratic person. And I think that everyone should be able to access great design and that it really lifts and elevates you if you have access to it. But normally it's at a very high price point. Mm-hmm. So I loved the fact that Ray, who I think is one of the best designers out there, was designing for H&M. And I remember being on Kensington High Street and there was the H&M collab with her and walking up to the store and not seeing a big line and thinking, are you kidding me? Why isn't anybody here? And then I turned into the store and it was a mob scene with people with stacks of product piled up on their arms. And I thought, why isn't anybody doing something like this in cosmetics that makes it sort of fun and great product at great design at a low price point? At the time, however, the only place to do something like that was in mass. So I created a line of products that was really well-designed and colloquial, I suppose, labeling and packaging and not too much waste and getting people what we said was the best bang for their beauty buck and launched it with Harvey Nichols, which did really, really well. But then you realize that actually you can't pay your bills just from one store. (laughs) And even if Harvey Nichols had six stores, we couldn't pay our bills from six stores. And so we then launched in Boots. That was really the point, wasn't it, when it went into Boots, when it really blew up? Well, yeah, because you can't really blow up out of one tiny spot. Again, the internet, it was there, but it wasn't like it is now. And it was so iconic at the time. I mean, like Bliss. And, you know, I remember as a teenager, you know, Bliss being the brand that we all wanted to own. And I remember Soap and Glory coming along and it had such an impact on the market. A lot of that came from the design that you've talked about. Are you a really creative person? Are you an artistic person? No, I can't use the programs. Right. So I would come up with the names, the copy. So every piece of copy that you'll read is probably mine. But someone else is bringing it alive. And yeah. Yeah. And then I'll say, you know what I want? want to use black and white photos and I think it should be pink and we should have like a photo like this and we should do trade gothic headlines and then someone kind of puts it together and designs it yeah so you eventually sold Soap yes. and Glory to Boots yes how many years on are we from you launching it so you launched it in 2006 yeah it was eight eight <laughs> years later <laughs> yeah speaking of eight years yeah something about magic eight. eight well it is the symbol of infinity right well there you go hmm. so you sold to Boots yes. was that an easy decision yes I think so yeah. And it was a lucrative deal. It was okay. I'm not a complainer. No, I don't okay. think it gets you anywhere. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So you sold it to Boots, but you already had at that point another business. Yes, two thousand seven with a year old soap and glory. You decided that that wasn't enough to keep you busy. The work life balance was just you know it was too easy, and so you launched Bitflop. Why did you launch another business a year later? Was soap and glory going that well in year two that you? I don't. I don't think it was that big in year two. To tell you the truth, I think it kind of picked up after maybe year three or year four, and then really exploded, as you have with retailers. Right, they sort of slowly test you. So you have to prove your worth on a shelf before they give you two shelves. Then you have to prove that your worth on two shelves before they give you three. And a behemoth like Boots is going to take their time to expand mm, you. Mm. And Fitflop actually was an idea that I had that had been brewing for quite a long time, even before I started Soap and Glory. And I had been on a panel. It was an advisory panel for a large cosmetics company where I was the you would call the wet products expert, so the product person and also the expert on spa treatments. And they were asking how women would feel about cellulite toning, treatments for toning, etc. Because I think it was one of the multinational conglomerates who wanted to introduce a cellulite product, but wanted kind of marketing advice on, you know, what we thought, how they might float it, given, you know, different angles. And I was on a panel and there was a woman who was an endermologist, you know what that mm-hmm. is, where they roll your mm-hmm. fat. So <laughs> they roll your fat between some wheels. And she was going on and on about how I think sparkling water was a cause of cellulite and this what and I just started to think, oh my God, come on, let's figure out the solution here. What's it gotta be? It's gotta be affordable whatever it is, right? Something to tone your legs has got to be affordable so lots of women can afford it because otherwise, what's the point? It can't be painful because if it's painful, nobody's going to do it. That's why nobody does endermology. It can't be messy because you're not going to do it and then have to clean up. Um, you have to, women believe that you have to participate in something that's going to make you better. So it can't be something where you just sit there because no one's going to believe that it works. And then there was a fifth one and I can't remember what it was, <laughs> but it was these five things. I remember just thinking, what do we do every day with something that isn't too expensive, that isn't painful, that isn't messy, that is actually actively participating in making ourselves better. And I thought, well, everybody walks. And then from my personal training background, my first thought was, let's put something on, like heavy, on your feet. And then I thought, no, wait, that's painful because it ruins your knees and it'll change your gait, which is, and I knew that because of my experience being a personal trainer, so the anatomy and physiology. I had just met someone who was an Indian guy who had a flip-flop factory, and he was telling me about how inexpensive flip-flops are to make. (laughs) Um, And then I'm thinking of all the other, you know, there were all these data points that came together when suddenly, and so I'm sitting on this panel, right? And this woman is still going on about the sparkling water and how it gives you cellulite. And all of a sudden I thought, what about a flip-flop that uses your muscles properly when you walk in it? Because everybody walks. We can all afford a flip-flop. It's not painful. It's not too heavy. So it's not going to change how your joints work. We're participating and it's not messy. 
And all the hair on my body stood up. <laughs> and I thought, should I say this? And then I thought, no, no I shouldn't. Way. <laughs> I am here for wet products and spa treatments. <laughs> so I jotted down this idea in my notebook and I got very excited about it. So I was in New York at the time and I remember just thinking, oh my God, I can't wait to get back to London because I've got to start researching this. And the hardest part about that was to find someone who understood what I was talking about because the internet was, you know, getting going then. And I would just type in shoe designers. Shoe designers do not know anything about ergonomics, biomechanics, the body, the joints, the gait, nothing. So I met and signed non-disclosure agreements with probably 12 shoe designers before I realized, you know what, they, they don't people teach feet. people anything about comfort or alignment in shoe design school at all. In fact, there's no test that a shoe is put through before someone's allowed to wear it. So you had your Eureka idea. Yes. And you went away and made a prototype. It's not that easy. So <laughs> I had to find somebody who knew what I was talking about and how to make a prototype. And I wasn't using the right terminology. And so you just have to keep trying. So shoe designer was not getting me where I needed to go. Now, interestingly, from another source, I was meeting with a professor from the University of Swansea, who was the dean of the University of Swansea and had invented intense pulse light laser hair removal or intense pulse light hair removal, which is IPL. And he came to London and was meeting with me to ask if I would create a product line that would go for before and after use with this machine. And so I did the meeting with him. And then at the end, I said, maybe you can help me. I'm trying to invent a shoe that helps align the body and work the muscles properly in your legs when you walk. I want to invent a flip-flop that does this. And he looked at me and said, oh, you should come up to Swansea and meet with our biomechanics department. That was a word that I didn't know. I didn't know biomechanists were the people I needed to meet about the shoe. I had already sold the shoe, by the way. I had sold 300,000 pairs, roughly, to a retailer in the United States by showing them a picture. Wow. <laughs> it was actually a drawing. I drew what I thought this flip-flop would look like, and I took it to a meeting and I said, this is what I'm working on next. And they looked at me and they said, we will buy between 30,000 and 300,000 of those a year. Wow. And then I thought, oh my God, I've got to find someone who can do this shoe. Because at the time, it was just kind of a fat flip-flop. So finally, someone emailed me who was doing packaging for me and helping with the packaging sourcing side for Soap and Glory. And she said, look, there's a biomechanics division in London South Bank University. Why don't you go over there? You know, by now I've kind of got fatigue, but I've got to give it a go because it is a great idea and I've got a buyer. So I got in a taxi, went over to South Bank University was introduced by their business development guide to Dr. Dave Cook and Darren James, who were these two biomechanists who were their university, you know, sort of uh, house biomechanists. And I said, okay, I made them sign my non-disclosure agreement. And I said, okay, here's my idea. I want to make a flip-flop that aligns your skeleton, that works your muscles the right way when you wear it. And Dave looks at me and said, well, I know how you do that. And that was it. But it was this persistence, right? Did you kiss him on the spot? Not my type. So they said, we'll make this, but it's the February break. So you have to wait until everybody comes back and we'll have a prototype ready for you by March 2nd or something like that. So they called me. They had the prototype. I was so excited. I went in. 
And it looked like a lump of coal <laughs> with ropes on the side. And I looked at it and thought, well, no one is going to wear that even in their own house. But it worked. And how did they become an instant hit? I mean, you say there's no such thing as an overnight success. Yes. I that mean, was a good one. I'd say it's pretty it close with Fitgold, right? You saw nearly five million pairs in the first two years yes. of launching. I mean, that is phenomenal. You know, it was quite good. We were actually on the Sunday Times homepage as the most read story for two months running over top of an article that was Putin on why the West should be more worried and <laughs> and somebody else gives their advice for blah 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 and those were the other two stories underneath the fit flop story for two months running incredible it was incredible how i guess if you think about that so what question right so what about this shoe to have a shoe that you can wear that helps to work the muscles in your legs it's like the laziness in us isn't it it's like a little I bit i can put on a shoe and walk around and i'm doing some good I think. yeah I think that really anything, appealed to people didn't it anything that you can do that's going to evolve you right or make your life a little bit better make your life a little bit easier that doesn't actually require a huge change of habit is going to be a winner, right? And how did you get that message out? Well, at the beginning, it was really PR. So it was press. I remember we had a tiny little, remember Grazia? Mm. Well, of course, you remember Grazia. Grazia is still around. But this was when Grazia was first out, right? Mm. It was probably the first two or three years. And they had this column in the back. It was just one little column. And somebody wrote about it being sort of a hot item. And then it was in the Saturday Times magazine, Tina Godwin, Cool Hunter. Mm -hmm. And then it was in the Sunday Times, I'm trying to remember, on the same weekend. And we had literally 50,000 hits on our website before 9 o'clock in the morning. Amazing. And it was just a homepage. Amazing. And it was only Kings Road Sporting Club that sold them. It was really a great time. These things are so fun, you know, back in the day where you're still driving the things from your garage. And... What has happened to FitFlop since then? Because it was, you know, everyone everywhere. Everyone had a pair. Everyone yes. had a pair. Yes. And well, it you was a trend, right? Products. Yeah, you we had to evolve into, it into boots and, and sneakers. Now and we have normal flip flops, and we're in sixty-five countries, and it's huge. But we had to evolve because it started as an item. And it was such a trendy item, and everybody had it. But when everybody has it, you get sick of looking at it. Mm. And then suddenly nobody wants it. So we had to make sure that we took that same, what was great about this, the biomechanics, the comfort, how she just loved wearing them, and then put that same menu, I suppose, the suite of distinctive items into every other shoe that we make. And you still own FitFlop now? I do. What's your plan for it? I just want to keep making great shoes. Amazing. It's running along. Amazing. I have a fantastic CEO and a great team. I you know, rarely have to do anything except for order shoes and try them out. And I'll look at, at the range once in a while. But we have people who are much better than I am now at footwear. We have a biomechanist in-house who tests every single product and midsole that we've got. We've got a design team who's done everything from you know, the sort of couture shoes to high street shoes. They don't really so need me an anymore. Really. You can do the fun stuff. Yes. So business number one, two, three, four was Super Duper. Yes. Which you launched in Liberty in 2016. Yes. So Soap and Glory was now owned by Boots. Yes. Bliss was with LVMH. Fit Flop was yours. And you decided you'd launch something else. Yes. I like cosmetics. I love the business. Tell us about Super Duper, what the concept was, is, it's quite a young business. Yes. It's quite a distinct shape to the bottle. 
Tell people listening. Well, I was, I was trying to take everything that I'd learned from doing brands before and roll it all up into one brand and then also look at what's happening right now with the environment and with the concerns about plastic waste and concerns about the purity of our water supply and create a brand that really addressed all of those things at the same time, plus had a really, um, I suppose, arm's length connection to a charity that gave back something that made sense in connection with the brand itself. So Sopa Duper is 100%, we say, perfectly luxurious, gloriously guilt-free because you are not only using a product that has nothing in it that will pollute the water table, right? So it's completely breaking down and is biodegradable, but they're in 100% recycled plastic bottles, which were designed by Ross Lovegrove, but that's just for fun. Mm -hmm. And we sell at very reasonable price points. And then we give money back to WaterAid so that people in developing countries or people who need it can also have clean water because soap and water is so important, right? And you launched a Liberty. Yes. This is Harvey Nichols for Soap and Glory. Why Liberty this time around? I just went for a meeting with Liberty and talked about it with them and they were so excited and they were looking for new, young, fresh brands that were doing something different to launch in an area in their store and they really were behind it and excited by it and supporting it. So we thought we would, you know, And give, they have fun, don't they? They, they definitely, they're out for having a bit of fun with brands. And yeah, products. I think they're not quite as serious in yeah. terms of being very designery. And while I love great design and I love, you know, great clothes, I am not quite that serious or snobby about it. And is it sold outside of the UK? Not at the moment. We haven't had time. What are your plans for it? Well, you know, right now it's growing in the UK. So I had some great advice once from an old master, I suppose, of the cosmetics industry who was right in saying that until you have a team on the ground who can really handle a new market, a new territory, you shouldn't go there. Mm -hmm. And right now, we're a small team. It's a startup. So Super Duper and Beauty Pie were all in the same office, but there's very few people to spread amidst these different brands, and we're all really busy. So we're kind of loving being in the UK, being able to massage that market, get the love from the customers, build that business. It's like a beautiful little nugget that we're just shining up and growing very organically. Mm. And you know what? There's something so wonderful about not having the pressure to get really big, which you should feel at the beginning of a business. You should be enjoying every minute and every time an order comes in, you should be enjoying that. And sometimes you can lose sight of that when a business gets too big because it's all about hitting a number. And for me, that's not so fun. For me, it's about the community and just seeing something beautiful grow. Well, luxury is to be in that position. Yes, it but, is. You know, you've it made is. that happen. Let's talk about Beauty Pie. Yes. Because, wow, when that came along, everyone's response was, she's done it again. I mean, she's invincible. This, where does she keep coming up with these complete game changers, industry disruptors? And it's such an amazing idea. But it's so obvious. It's so obvious. So you launched that in what year? Truth. 2016, just at the end. You launched that in the same year as Sopa Duper. Yes, a couple of months later. Why not? Why not? And were you working on the plans for those simultaneously? Yes, but they're very different business models. So one is really through retail and you happen to have a website, although our website is now... 
we just keep running out of inventory on our website. So this is Beauty Prize website. No, this is actually Sopa Duper's oh, website. Right. So that was the retail, you know, we're thinking, oh, we'll do this in retail and we'll do it mass and we'll set up a little website. But now the website never has any inventory. So you just see how much retail is moving towards web. But at the same time with Beauty Pie, which is a whopper and it is a disruptor and it is a revolution, I thought to myself, look, I probably am going to do one more business, right? I've done four already and five is probably a good number. And what would I really want to do? What do I love? What have I done before that I'd like to repeat? And this is what I do for company, right? So, you know, how there's an old saying that says your first marriage is for love, second one's for money, the third one's for companionship. There is this old saying. And so I would say my fifth one is kind of for companionship. And if I said, I am not going to compromise, what do I not like about what I've had to do in the beauty industry and what do I like? And what can I make out of that if it's a pure thing out of my heart? I love product development. I love expensive, active, products that are luxury quality, that are beautiful textures. I like to be able to source them from all of the best labs all over the world because going to the lab is like a fairy tale. So when you're in product development and you go to Italy and you get to sit with the chemists and they present you all of their latest work, which is what happens for all of us. So as product developers, whether you're in my brand or Charlotte Tilbury or Tom Ford, you get invited to the same labs and they present their stuff to you. And then you choose which products you want to take and put in your packaging. And not much change happens between the choice and the packaging, except the difference between Beauty Pie and a retail brand is that we don't mark the product up 10 times to cover all the margins. So for people listening that don't know Beauty yes. Pie, I can't imagine who they are. And if you don't <laughs> go and check it out, because it's amazing. Talk us through why the concept is so unique and clever. Okay, what we've decided to do is democratize deluxe luxury beauty so that everyone can access it. And I did this by considering how Spotify has changed the record industry and how Netflix has changed the movie business. And I thought, you know, the beauty business is so tired. It's done the same way. We all, as brands, shop from about 10 to 15 elite labs around the world. Then you have the mass market labs who make the shower gels and the, you know, sort of the fast moving mm-hmm. stuff. But for lipstick, for high tech skin cream, for eyeshadows, for powders, they come from the same places mm-hmm. and we all use the same labs and we all very, very closely use the same formulas. And the cost of goods is pretty low. The cost of goods is about a tenth of what a retail price will be, which in the end is shocking. So I realized how shocking it was when, having been out of the beauty industry for a while, I was heading over to China to work in the factory on one of our collections for Fiflop. And I was in duty-free because I'd forgotten a moisturizer. And so I went through duty-free to buy a moisturizer. And knowing what this stuff really costs to make, and then seeing what the prices were in duty-free, I actually couldn't bring myself to buy one because everything was 70 pounds and up, up to 350. I know that costs mm. four pounds in bulk, three pounds in packaging, etc. And I just thought, wait a second, if I don't want to buy this, why should anybody buy this anymore? It's old. It used to be that we had to align ourselves with brands to define ourselves, right? I'm a Chanel girl. I'm a blah, blah, blah girl. And you would kind of 
relate to a brand and that would help you feel a certain way about yourself. Now, I think the brand that's the most important to every woman out there is her own. Mm. She has her Instagram page. She's got her social media feed. She defines herself by what she posts, not what's stamped on her makeup. Mm. So why should she pay 10 times what that lipstick costs to make to buy it from a shop? And ultimately, you know, if you can get your hands on that kind of product for less, I mean, why, why wouldn't why you? Wouldn't you? you yeah. So you created Beauty Pie. Beauty Pie, which is around getting a bigger piece of the Beauty Pie. But it's clever. So it's a subscription. So model. it's a membership. So you membership, pay monthly. Yeah. yeah and, and we don't send you anything automatically. You just pay to get in the door. And for the amount that you, you pay, pay, how much? You pay £10 a month. Yeah. Sometimes we try £5 a month or you can pay £99 a year or whatever. And for that, you can shop. There's a limit of how much you can buy, obviously, because we can't just have tons and tons of stuff and then have people come in for a month and then leave because mm. we have to run our business and pay our staff and mm-hmm. all of those things. But what it works out to is that you can see the actual transparent cost of what it costs to make that product. And then you can buy up to a hundred pounds each month worth of product. And if you go for an upgrade, which a lot of our members, that's not enough for them because we look at the typical retail price of that product and that's what you're measured on, but you only pay the factory cost. So people who have a 100 or 200 pound a month membership, which costs them 10 or 20 pounds a month to come and shop, can buy such a tremendous amount of stuff. For people listening, give us an example. So a great high-performance moisturizer. Okay, an incredible Swiss anti-aging high-tech moisturizer with every anti-aging ingredient in it in a beautiful jar in a beautiful box. Might be priced at $100 on the website, but if you're a member, it costs you about $12.86 because that's what it really costs. And then you pay your £10 a month. So all in, you'd be paying £22 for something that you'd probably at retail pay £100 plus for. And it's makeup and skincare. We have makeup, we have skincare, we have makeup brushes, which are always extortionate and actually cost very little to make, even the best ones. And then we've started with luxury candles. We'll be launching fragrance in November. Very excited about this. Yes, but we've started with the fragrance, the nose, um, who did some of the best performing products for Lilabo. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that is exciting. We go to the best places and we get Incredible. the best stuff. I mean, just sitting there going, why didn't I come up with that? Like, you're obviously an ideas person, right? Well, you connect the dots, yeah. don't you? You connect the dots and you figure out, okay... I know that Spotify is the way people want to listen to music now. And I know Mm. that people, they have access and they have information and they know about markups and what used to have value for them doesn't necessarily have value Mm. for them anymore. So how do you strip those Mm. non-value adding margins out of the food chain? When you're in a typical beauty industry person, you look at how much can we sell this for? And then you'll say, well, we have to give half of that to the department store. And then we have to use 40% for overheads. And then we need to pay X to marketing. And then we need to buy. And you actually look at the retail price and you back out of it. Mm. And then you value engineer your product to cost that much, which Mm. is not. Not the way to do it. It's so (laughs) obvious that this isn't how we should be making products for women or men. So the idea that you could go to Beauty Pie and buy a Lalabo quality fragrance. Yes. For maybe £12. Amazing. It's going to be great. I mean, God, it's just phenomenal. What's your role in Beauty Pie? Are you more involved in Beauty Pie than you are in Sopa Dupa? Hmm. Are you more invested in this? Because, you know, the potential of this is just 
huge. Yes. Someone said, how do you split your time? I said, well, 100% for each of them. I just okay. try harder than everybody I know. Okay. <laughs> and do you have investors in Beauty Pie? At the you- moment, we're floating this one ourselves from the windfall from the last one. Talking about the products a little bit more on Beauty Pie, how many products are there in total? I think at the moment we have about 300 different products. We change them constantly. We have new launches that come in every month, seasonal things. We have things that we'll bring in once and see if it works. And if people love them, we bring it in again. And then we'll have other things that we just launch and then see if people love them and maybe we don't plan to keep them as core items and what are the core items if there are people listening then i'm going to get involved in beauty pie what are the things that just fell off the shelves okay well we have the super healthy skin ultimate anti-aging cream which is that incredible swiss moisturizer that has absolutely everything talking about (laughs) (laughs) it has everything in it everything except for the kitchen sink and is about 12 pounds that is a consistently great seller. The Fruit Design 5-Minute Facial is an incredible seller. On the makeup side, lipsticks, mascaras, foundation. I mean, people spend so much money on Mm -hmm. foundation. Mm -hmm. And really, we get our foundation from this fantastic Italian lab who does foundation for a lot of other fantastic Italian companies. And it's about six pounds, I think, something like that. So if you're spending 60 on your foundation, you know, you can really just think about it. Even if all you buy is foundation for Mm. your 10 pounds a month, you're still saving a lot. And with the membership model, can you cancel your membership? You can cancel your membership anytime after three months. Okay. Yeah. There you go. And just talking about the labs, you talked about Italy. Yes. Um, You've got labs in South Korea. We source from labs. So... How the beauty industry works is that there are third-party labs who create all the innovation, pretty much. So they will then come and present you their new innovation. So they are really the ones who aren't getting the credit for a lot of the new innovation that you see has been created by a chemist or an engineer in a third-party lab somewhere who then goes out to a trade show and shows brands, we have this, we have that, et cetera, et cetera. What are you interested in? And then you label it and package it Mm. in your packaging. Mm. So we have Japanese labs. We have Korean labs, Germany. We have labs in Italy, France, Switzerland. Japan and Korea, we're obviously seeing so much beauty innovation coming out of countries like that. Why do you think that is? Why are they producing such high-performance products? First of all, I think Japan has always been creating incredible product, and they are masters at the technology of touch and sensorial feel. So they are a really a step above in terms of how a product glides on, the textures, the lightweightness of them, and making sure that there are scents that aren't overwhelming but are sort of perfect for the skin. There's something about the Japanese culture that makes mm-hmm. them very particular and makes mm-hmm. them do things perfectly. Mm-hmm. So this that master craftsmanship that has been going on there for a very, very long time. Korea is incredibly competitive and they are a source of innovation. It's just an innovative culture. You see that from Samsung, right? Which yeah. is, you know, yeah. really battling for market share against Apple and actually doing well. Mm. And there is this feeling when you go to Korea of people trying to rise and climb up and create things for themselves. And it's a real entrepreneurial culture. And there's a really good work ethic. And they invent and they move quickly. So it's not about looking at something for a very long time. They're just innovate, innovate, innovate. You may not always have there from what I've found. Um, We found a lot of labs that we've interviewed and we've gotten samples from. And the 
samples are great, but when it comes to production, they may not be quite mm. the same quality. So there's a lot of newness, mm -hmm. but then the execution isn't always the same as something like the Japanese execution, which is going to be perfect. So, but they may have more interesting technology or more kind of crazy new textures than the Swiss. Well, where do you go to get rid of your wrinkles? <laughs> they have it down in terms of which ingredients to mix with which other ingredients to make something really effective for skincare. Nobody does so it So we like just need to do. put our, our trust in Beauty Pie that you oh, will yeah. be that, sourcing the right products from the right countries for us. How have the industry responded? Because, you know, if I'm Jo Malone or Bobby Brown, I'm not that delighted that you're doing this. Yes. But, you know, I'm well, sure you have a lot of respect in the industry, understandably, with all your successes. Yes. What's the response been? Has there been a backlash? Well, in fact, Bobby Brown herself and Joe Malone herself both signed up as members of Beauty Pie very early on, actually. I think they read about us in Vogue and then they thought, well, this is unique and interesting and mm. signed up. Now, granted, Bobby Brown is not with Bobby Brown, the company anymore. Nor is Joe Malone, but she has the most wonderful She's wonderful amazing. new business. Yes, and she has a great nose and she's yeah, a she's really incredible entrepreneur. She's incredible. Yeah. But she wants to buy her skincare somewhere. So you, everybody needs their high tech skincare. At that. <laughs> and she probably knows how much it really costs to make yeah. and doesn't want to pay it just yeah. like I didn't. So, and what about other brands? What about the the big other brands? Are they um No one has called. Now? No. No. <laughs> They're all just very envious that you thought of it and they didn't. You know, I think it's one of those ideas that is probably worrisome for some. Mm. But, you know, before I launched it, I did have some nights where I thought, oh, my God, how can I do this? Everyone will hate me. And then I thought, but how can I not do it? Because think of all the women I think and of men the who love as, products. As you said when we were talking about Bliss, you think of the customer. Yeah, she's going to love isn't it. Isn't going to want this. And that yeah. must just drive you so much. Is that why, I mean, we could talk about Beauty Pie for hours. A final question on Beauty Pie. Is it just in the UK? No, right now we ship to the UK and we've opened a warehouse in the US also. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. So, and then we'll be branching out as we can. And you're going to sell it when? They're knocking on your door sell already? No. <laughs> well, phew. Yeah. <laughs> I'm having fun with this one. Not that I didn't have, I had fun with all the other ones. And I think as you go through a cycle of being an entrepreneur and, and constantly evolving what you're doing, you become less willing to compromise, mm. right? So previously I might have compromised and you know, maybe dealing with retailers who didn't want to give you shelf space because they had their own brands and they were giving their own brands all the shelf space. And I just found that to be an unfair thing. So I just wanted to create something that I would be happy doing, that would use my skills, what I love, and then be really great for the customer without compromising. And there's zero compromise in what we do at Beauty Pie mm. from sourcing the products to figuring out what goes in. Then we never have to say, gee, that's going to be too expensive. So let's take that active ingredient out because we can't afford it because mm. it's still only 10 pounds. Like who doesn't want another 40 cents worth of vitamin C in there? But if you're in a big company and you have to work your margins backwards yeah. and suddenly you have an extra expense, you have to value engineer the product. And that's not right for the customer. Too clever, really. So you said this is your fifth child. Yes. Is this it? Do you think this is the last one? Well, okay, there, I have one more idea. Oh, right. Yes, it's sort of health-based, but I can't tell you anything because it's not, the patent hasn't gone through yet. 
You're married. Yes. With two children. Yes. Does your husband work in the business? He is on a board of advisors. And does he want you to calm down and stop launching new companies? I think probably. <laughs> but I'm not ready. I just have too many ideas that I think would be really fun for myself and also for the people. If you can better somebody's life and it's fun along the way, you know, why wouldn't you? Your two children? Yes. I have two boys. How have you balanced that? through all these years? Uh, you just decide to give them 100% of your time when you're there with them. And then when you're not, you give your other projects 100% of your time. Someone gave me some advice that actually the best example you could give to children was to go and to work hard and show them that hard work pays off. And so I think if they see me traveling or if I'm not there, if I have to work late, you know, that's a good example for them. Well, a good example for us all. If there's anyone to inspire people listening, it's you, Marcia. And I feel very lucky to do my job when I get to talk to people like you. Why, thank you. I feel lucky to have you in here helping me, you know, spread the word. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Huge congratulations well on everything and particularly on Beauty Pie. Thank Um, you. I look forward to sampling these fragrances when they're available. Thank you so much. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed that, then do please rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.